Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the subject that is on everyone's mind all the time, the genealogies of Genesis. <laughs> Everybody just dying to hear about this, I know. And uh, what we're going to do is today um, just look at how these are to be understood in terms of chronology, in terms of... Uh, actually, we'll, what we'll do this morning is spend a lot of time on how not to understand that, un- understand these, because uh, many, 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 many have looked at this and assumed that what we should be able to do is add up the years and go back and find a date of creation. Um, that's not how they're to be handled. Um, but So today what we'll do is look at how, how to understand, how not to understand the genealogies, and then next week, uh, hopefully something more positive with that. Um, this is, and I... I admit it up front, this can be a little bit pedantic. Um, I was telling somebody recently that many years ago, I put in so many hours, it's just ridiculous how many hours I put in studying the genealogies of Genesis and searching them out and trying to find what's what and uh, how to understand them and all of that. And I got through it, okay, I did that. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully I'll give you a, a brief overview of that this morning. Genesis 5 and verse 1, you'll see here that this begins a new section of the book. Remember this expression here that we have in Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now that one's just a little bit different of what we see the rest of the book of Genesis, but this signals Moses' structuring of the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. And I think I have that on your handout, his organizational structure of the book. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of generation of, of uh, generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, these are the generations of Noah's sons, of Shem and Terah and so on. This is Moses' organizational structure for the book. Now, within those sections, he'll add some narrative sections um, to explain what's going on with these people and their descendants and so on. But chapter 5 now, in verse 1, begins this new section of the book, the book of the generations of Adam. Um, The fact that it says the book of the generations of Adam signals perhaps that Moses here is dealing with uh, some source material of his own. There's been some fascinating work on that. Uh, the, the critics, of course, have done lots of work on source material in Genesis, but uh, there has been some fascinating work on that, and this is, I think, one, one signal of that. But there is in Genesis, obviously, a strong interest in genealogies. Um, goes back, well, ultimately, it goes back to Genesis 3, verse 15, the promise of the woman's seed, the woman's offspring, who will come be a champion over, over Satan. But we have sustained interest in genealogies in Genesis. If you remember at the end of chapter 4 that we saw last time, we have Cain's family, who is highlighted. And then at the very end of chapter 4, we have just briefly Seth's family introduced with just one generation of it. And now chapter 5 beginning with verse 1, we have from Adam to Noah. This is 
chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of chapter 9, from Adam to Noah. Chapter 5 now, we have the genealogy of Seth, ten generations, and then three sons of Noah. So we have Seth. If you have your Bibles, you want to glance through, you have Seth, and then Enosh, Canaan, and Mahalil, and Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, and Lamech, and Noah. And then Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is this section of the book. In chapter 6 through 9, of course, we have the flood narrative. Um, But this larger section of Genesis, chapter 5 to 9, is the book of the generations of Adam. We have Adam through Noah. Now, within this genealogy section, (coughs) sons of Adam, (coughs) we have some brief narratives along the way. Chapter 5, verse 24, we have a brief note about Enoch and his uh, being translated, God took him. Chapter 5, verse 29, we have Lamech's naming of Noah, which is significant that we'll see later when we get to Noah. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we have the interaction of the sons of God with the daughters of men, which is a setup for the flood narrative that comes after that. And then chapter 9, of course, we have um, in the covenant section where God establishes a covenant with Noah and all of creation. And then we have uh, later in uh, chapter 9, Noah's, the story of Noah's drunkenness and the aftermath of that and the prophecies regarding his three children. And uh, we will get to that as well. So that's chapters 5 through 9. Chapter 10, then, just looking ahead, we have what's called the Table of Nations. This is the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is not, strictly speaking, just a genealogy. Chapter 10 is a table of nations. It's a fascinating piece of uh, literature that has intrigued uh, even critical scholars. We'll see that when we get to chapter 10. But you'll see that, chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. And then it outlines the sons that they had and the people groups that came from them. We'll we'll get to that. Um, Chapter 11, then, Verses 1 to 9, we have the Tower of Babel incident, and we will take uh, one time for that as well. Uh, Chapter 11, then, in chapter 11, verses 10 to the end of the chapter, we have another genealogy. That's the Shem genealogy again. These are the generations of Shem. So we have chapter 11, verse 10, Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Surig, Nahor, Terah. Terah had Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. All right, today what we're going to do then is look at these genealogies, particularly in chapter 5, but also chapter, uh, briefly at chapter 10 and chapter 11, but especially 5 and 11, and ask the question, what is their purpose and how are they to be understood? It's often assumed, as I said, that what we should be able to do is go back through these, so-and-so lived so many years and had a son and lived so many more years and died. What we ought to be able to do is look, look back through those, count up the years, and simply come up with a date for creation. The man credited with that particularly is a man by the name of James Usher, U-S-S-H-E-R. He was a uh, 17th century Anglican bishop in Ireland, 
who was enormously influential for his uh, biblical studies, particularly his book called Chronology. Uh, he attempted to work back through all of these genealogies, come back to a, a creation date, which he calculated then to be 4004 B.C. I haven't seen this in his work, but somebody said that he actually said it was October 23rd, 4004. I don't know if that's true or not. I can't imagine. But his dates for creation and then onward uh, were so influential that they appeared in the margins of, of the King James Version um, in 1701 and then for years to come. It was just massively influential. Uh, his calculations were virtually unquestioned, certainly by all conservatives, for, for decades and decades, massively influential. In 1890, a Princeton Old Testament scholar, Princeton uh, Seminary, by the name of William Henry Green, he was just a giant of Old Testament studies, uh, wrote an article in the Princeton Theological Journal uh, entitled, well, no, it was in Bib Sac, Bibliotheca Sacra, entitled uh, Biblical Chronology, or Primeval Chronology, I think it was called. And he concluded this. On these various grounds, he, he studied, the article is a meticulous, thorough, and very lengthy analysis of the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. And he concludes, on these various grounds, we conclude that the scriptures furnish no data for a chronological computation prior to the life of Abraham, and that the Mosaic records do not fix and were not intended to fix the precise date either of the flood or of the creation of the world. Well, it was a, an influential article that he wrote in 1911. That's 21 years later. His former student and now colleague, um, and then colleague um, Benjamin Warfield, uh, wrote another article on it entitled "The Antiquity on the Antiquity and the Unity of the Human Race. And he basically built on uh, William Henry Green's work, and uh, he concluded with the same he says, the question of the antiquity of man has of itself no theological significance. I think he, Warfield may have overstated that a little bit, but he concluded the same. Um, because of Green's work and Warfield's work, Usher's chronology was thoroughly, thoroughly discredited. Virtually no evangelical held, or conservative held to it any longer after that. Um, it was just thorough, very, very influential. And no one held to that 4004 B.C. creation date or 6,000-year-old Earth until the 1950s when we have the creation-evolution debates that became so prominent and then the young Earth creationists uh, in that became so prominent. Usher then was re resurrected. And for many, and even still today now, for many, anything past 4,000-something B.C., anything more than a 6,000-year-old Earth is somehow uh, compromising with evolution. Well, a couple of big problems with, uh, and I'm not going to get into um, Usher's chronology in a big detail, but a couple of the problems that he, he was evidently unaware of in his studies one is the overlapping reigns of the kings. This is now later in history. Uh, the overlapping reigns of the kings and the overlapping uh, work of the judges in the book of Judges that we don't have in the book of Judges, for example, 
one judge, then another, then another, then another. But in the various tribes of Israel, you have these judges and their uh, warlords. You can understand them as that way, happening at overlapping times. And so those, those numbers cannot be just added up. Same with the kings. You have kings who uh, reigned with their fathers for a time. The numbers that are given have to be calculated. It's been an, an enormous amount of work on that as well. Uh, that complicates the matter of going back. But going back to Abraham, we can be pretty certain of that. And in fact, I think I have in your handout at the bottom of it, the last page, the calculations for that. I doubt we'll get to that. But how we can compute back to the uh, age of uh, the date of Abraham. Uh, but the question, what comes into question is Genesis 5 and 11. And this is the other thing that Usher overlooked, that there are gaps. There are gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. They are not exhaustive. They're not intended to be exhaustive. And to treat them that way is to, be in it, is to make a mistake in interpreting them. Now, to do that, let me give you some rather simple... Um, to understand that, let me give you some more obvious illustrations of it. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now you know that in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. What we have here actually is two genealogies of Jesus. We have one in Matthew 1, verse 1, and then we have another in Matthew 1, verse 2, and all the way down to, what is it, verse 18 or so. But notice verse 1. The book of the generations of Jesus, son of Abraham, I mean son of David, son of Abraham. So there's the whole genealogy of Jesus in three steps. Abraham, David, Jesus. Going backwards, Jesus, David, Abraham. The whole genealogy covered in, in three steps. Now what you learn with that, just looking at that verse, what we learn already is that this expression, son of, doesn't mean necessarily the immediate son of. It can mean a descendant of. It's the way the word expression is used in in Hebrew, in Greek, in English, in virtually every other language, son of can have an, uh, a, a, a wide range of meanings. And here it clearly means descendant. So the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, or descendant of David, descendant of Abraham is clearly the sense. Now in verses 2 to 16, you have Abraham to Jesus. And here we have the other expression, begat. Or if you have what the version I have, the ESV, the father of. So he's the father of, the father of, the father of. And you see all these generations, 14 and 14, that are used here in this passage. And here we learn then the significance of the word begat, or became the father of. Common meanings of them, and this is not just Hebrew or Greek, it's English, it's the way it's used in virtually every language. The word begat can mean became the immediate father of, or it can mean the ancestor of, you find the expression in the New Testament, Father Abraham. So it can mean father, it can mean grandfather, it can mean great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather. The father of, or begat, means became the ancestor of. Uh, whether it's immediate 
uh, father of or something later is up for the context to determine. Or, in fact, this word begat can simply mean the predecessor. Or the founders. We have the fathers of our country, or the church fathers, as they're referred to, the theologians of the early centuries of the church. Um, we have an expression in First uh, Chronicles 2, verses 50 and 51, which is interesting here, where it mentions Salma, the father of Bethlehem. Well, the founder of Bethlehem is obviously, uh, seems pretty clear what's, what's involved. Look at Matthew 1, verse 8. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Now, to keep in mind what Matthew is doing here is he's divided up Jesus' genealogy from verses 2 to 16 into two groups of 14. To do that, he's had to skip some to make it parallel and that's for the purposes of memorization. It doesn't have to be exhaustive. But what we have here in verse 8, Joram, the father of Uzziah, actually skips three generations. And you can compare that to the passages that I have there for you in the Old Testament. It's actually Josiah, Jeconiah, and then uh, Jehoiakim. Uh, these are, meant, are skipped there. It's simply not intended to be exhaustive wasn't the purpose. Now, the question then is, back to Genesis, does this happen in Genesis as well? So look back at Genesis chapter 10. I think I have that on your handout there. Genesis 10, verses 21 to 24. <clears throat> to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Now notice the expression in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. Now notice how it goes. It's Shem, and then Arphaxad, and then Shelah, and then Eber. And yet it says at the beginning, Shem's the father of all the children of Eber. So several generations skip. The point is, he's the ancestor of. So this is just the way it works simply. It's the way the terminology is used. Uh, we have the same kind of thing in Genesis chapter 11. These are the sons, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arphaxad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Now, in fact, we learn from Luke's genealogy that there's one skipped here as well. It is Arphaxad and Shelah, and I have that for you. Canaan uh, isn't, has been skipped. Now, all of that quickly to look over it. What do we learn from that? What we learn from it, first off, is that these ancient genealogies are not exhaustive. They're not intended to be exhaustive. They're not intended to include every generation. That's just the way genealogies work. And in fact, this is not unique to the uh, biblical genealogies and the ancient genealogies. Uh, it, it happens all the time. There is, uh, in uh, southern Egypt, there's the Temple of Osiris, the king who uh, put up a list of uh, the famous Osiris king's list. 
put up a list of the previous kings up on the wall inscribed there in a famous inscription. Two dynasties of kings are omitted in that list. Now, in that case, the two dynasties that were omitted were the Hyksos dynasties, which were another ethnic group that came into Egypt, dominated for a while. They didn't want to mention them, so let's leave them out. It's kind of like leave out the guys you don't like. I was in uh, looking at some historical site in the down in Warminster area a few years ago, and uh, a place where uh, George Whitfield had preached and William Tennant had pastored and so on. And in the foyer of the church building uh, where I was, where uh, William Tennant had, had pastored at one time, uh, there's a, a, I think it was granite inscription that was hung on the wall, probably used to be outside, but it was in the foyer now. And it had a list of all of the early pastors of the church. Uh, so-and-so from 17 this to 17 that, so-and-so from 17 this to 17 that, and, you know, they got the list of the pastors, and I think it was the third one down or something like that, um, was just hollowed out, engraved out. It was just a blank line. You could tell there used to be a name there, but now it's just smoothed over, and so you've got a blank line, and then we go to the next one. And we were talking to the pastor down there about it, and he said what happened was they found out later that the pastor who was here and married and had a family here uh, was married and had a family back in, I think it was Scotland, as well. And uh, so it turned out to be a pretty bad guy, and they didn't want a memory of him, so they just scratched that out. Um, well, that's not really what's going on in, in Genesis, but you do have skipped generations that's, that are going on. And the ancient ways, the, the, the ancients had, had ways of uh, establishing exact chronology. But genealogies were not used for that. That wasn't their purpose. They're not intended to be exhaustive. Now, it's worth noticing here in these genealogies that some of the symmetry that's built into them. So in Genesis 5, we have Adam to Noah, 10 generations, and then the 10th generation ends with three children. Noah, we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's chapter 5. Then chapter 11, verses uh, 10 and following, we have the same. Shem to Abram, and then three children. Or, or, uh, Shem to Abram, ten generations. In Matthew chapter 1 that I've already mentioned, we have three groups of 14 generations, and Matthew skips at least three generations to achieve that 14, 14, 14. And we get a hint in all of this symmetry 10 plus 3, and so on, 10 generations, 10 generations, 14, 14, 14. You get a hint in all of that of the purpose of the genealogies. The purpose was for memorization. Uh, the mnemonic technique was used to help memorize. It wasn't intended to be exhaustive. It was just to show continuity and God's protection of the line. i give you an example there of, of Genesis chapter 5. Um, in the older translations, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But then in the newer ones, ESV and NIV, after Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why did they put after? The Hebrew doesn't say after. Well, if you look back, Matt, Noah was 500 years old, begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Are we to assume that these three were triplets? 
No, I don't think so. And I think that the ESV and the NIV account for that well. Um, uh, I won't go into the details of that, but in that accounting, we can, we can see that clearly it was when he, he began to have children. And Abram is mentioned first, not because he was the eldest, but Abram is mentioned first because he is the most prominent of them and the one that will be uh, tra- traced a little bit further later on. Chapter 11, verse 26, Terah's three sons. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And, uh, well, I'm not going to get into the calculations. I've given you the information for it there. Um, The bottom line of chapter 11, verse 26, is Terah lived 70 years, and he began to have children. The first of them, uh, three sons, was born, the most important of whom was Abram. And he he is the one we'll pick up in chapter 12. Now, there are some other problems with Usher's chronology. And this, I think, it's pretty complicated for it as well. In Genesis 4 to 11, when you read through all of these generations that come, Cain's descendants, the advances in technology that we saw last time, uh, the advances of the people groups, chapter 10 in particular with the expansion of the three sons of Noah to all of the nations of the world and these people groups that come from them. When we read through Genesis 4 to 11, we we get the distinct impression that there's this advance of civilizations, advance of cities, advance of nations, cultures, advancements of various kinds. That takes time. Now, if Usher is right... If Usher's chronology is right, then Adam died only 126 years before Noah. Seth died only 14 years before Noah. Enoch was taken only 69 years before Noah. Abram was 58 years the contemporary of Noah. Shem actually outlived Abram by 30 years. Peleg, in chapter 10, who in whose days was the uh, Tower of Babel, died while all of his ancestors, from Noah onward, were still living. This is if Usher is correct. Um, and yet, in all of that, Noah was the only preacher of righteousness. It just doesn't seem to fit the sense of what you get in those chapters. Genesis 10 in particular gives the impression of this long expanse of civilizations and nations and people groups. And if Usher's chronology is to be taken as correct, then all of these patriarchs were contemporaries of Abram, even Noah himself. Um, Eber, Eber, who is the father of the Hebrew people, that's where we get the word Hebrew from Eber, was descendant of Noah. Uh, even he outlived Abram by four years, if, if Usher's right. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to fit. We get to chapter 11, and we have Babel, uh, Tower of Babel. Usher dates this about 2300 B.C. Um, I think both the Bible, in terms of what I've just surveyed, and ancient historical studies, archaeologists, all agree that it just demands a date much earlier than that. Um, Chapter 10, verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of his 
of the first of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. I think that's a reference to the Tower of Babel. Um, on Usher's reading, Babel was somewhere around 2300 B.C. in the lifetime of Peleg, but all of the nations and cultures of the time of Abraham uh, then began and uh, were settled in about 200 years. Um, it just doesn't seem to be enough time for any of that that we have in these passages uh, to happen and to transpire. Um, Bible lists many cities, 26 cities in Canaan alone uh, that, that arose. We've got the populations of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgasites, the Jebusites, and all these people groups that are growing and if, Crusher's, if Usher's chronology is right, it all happens within a matter of a couple hundred years or something like that. It's just, it's just not working well. So I think the, the sense that we get from Genesis 4 to 11 of this advancing civilization demands more time than what Usher's chronology allows. Um, I've given you there some more examples of skip generations. I'm not going to get into any more of that. I think you see the point. Um, Exodus, there's one, there's some uh, interesting ones in other places, but it is rather pedantic. All right, how is all of this important then? Well, first off, it just shatters the notion, I think. It shatters the notion that all we have to do is add up the numbers and we come back to creation date. That's not what the numbers are there for. It's clearly that there just weren't, there were gaps and they're not intended to be exhaustive. And if you can demonstrate one gap, we've demonstrated a few, if you can demonstrate just one gap, but then the whole, the whole theory is shot. Now, Warfield makes the statement in his article that the age of antiquity of humanity is of no theological significance whatever, and he leaves it wide open to go as far back as as what needs to be determined on other grounds. I'm not sure that it's that open-ended because the gaps that we can demonstrate are not that big. So while at this, on the one hand, I don't think we can be uh, certain at all that creation was at 4,000 BC or 4,004 or whatever, uh, neither do I think that we can say it was 250,000 BC. I just don't think we have that much gap uh, going on. So there's some constraint to it. It's not entirely open-ended. I think it's worth noting, too, that Moses does not just list the names, the names at which they were born, the length of time that they lived. He also gives some uh, more than just the total number of years and the total lifespan. So he'll say things that are really unnecessary if the point is to just add up the numbers. So, for example, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, the days of Adam, after he begat Seth were 800 years, he began, he begat sons and daughters, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Some of those details are unnecessary if the purpose is simply to uh, demonstrate chronology, it, because all of those details don't contribute to it at all. So it raises the question, what is the purpose of these numbers? He lived so many years, begat a son lived so many more years, and he died, and so-and-so lived so many years. And what's the purpose then? And I think 
the answer is found. We'll see more of this next time. But if you put out of your mind any idea of just adding up the numbers collectively and calculating backwards, if you put that out of your mind, what impression is left as you read through Genesis chapter 5? Let me give you some samples. What's the impression left when you hear these numbers? When Adam lived 100, this is verse 1. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son. He lived 130 years and fathered a son. Verse 5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. All the days of Seth, verse 8, were 912 years, and he died. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan at 90. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. You read those numbers, what do you think? What kind of humanity is this? Live to be 130 and have more children. And then live another 800 years after that. This is not what was meant in chapter 6, but we can borrow the language and say, there were giants in the land in those days. This is impressive. And I think that's the impression that's intended to be left. We'll see more of that next time, um, the theological purpose of the genealogies. I have at the bottom of your outline there how we calculate the date of Abraham. Um, I can't get into that now, but you have the raw data there, um, and we can confirm that. Oh, I should mention on your handout, I have it wrong. I think I fixed it in time for the... uh, One's for the people on Zoom who have it. But the bottom of your handout, I have uh, 2155. That was a typo. It should be 2166 um, for Abraham. Um, But through this kind of dead reckoning, we can get back to the date of Abraham. Before that, it gets very, very difficult. This one is easier because we have in 1 Kings 6, 1, that anchor point. Solomon's fourth year of reign was the 480th year after the Exodus. We can, uh, we can fix um, Solomon's accession year at 970 B.C., and so the fourth year would be 966, 480 years before that is 1446, for that's the Exodus, um, and we work backwards from there, and, and the dates work out fairly, fairly easily. All right, this has been a lot of data this morning, but I wanted to uh, just have it out there for you to understand how at least not to understand Genesis 5, and next time we'll look better, at, I think, at how, uh, what it's intended to convey. Any questions on that? Yeah, Jim. So if uh, Usher's timeline was so easily debunked, why was it 